Hello and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Double Jeopardy, Black Feminism. Different kinds of problems call for different kinds of solution. Sometimes you can break down a big problem into smaller, hopefully more manageable problems. Say you're trying to fix up a car that's in bad shape. You'd go about this by repairing each part, one after another. The carburetor, then the brakes, then the thingy with the coolant inside, and then, well, that's all the car parts we could think of off the top of our heads, but you get the idea. Very different, though, would be the approach needed for a task where Chike and I have more expertise, understanding a difficult philosophical text. Here, you can't just try to understand each sentence, argument, or paragraph on its own, because your reading of one part will affect your reading of another part. Ideally, you want to find an interpretation that provides consistency across the whole work. Or if you prefer a more down-to-earth example, say you're adjusting the seasoning in a stew. If you add more spice, you might want to add less salt. In cases like these, you need to keep an eye on the big picture and understand how everything hangs together. Many have thought of the plight of black women as a problem of the first kind. Black women are, of course, black and suffer from racism, and they are, of course, women so they suffer from sexism. So the way to improve the lot of black women is to work for equality in these two separate spheres, race and gender. Sometimes it has seemed that the chief question is not a conceptual but a tactical one, whether it is more urgent to fight for racial or gender liberation. As we saw many episodes ago, figures like Frederick Douglass already considered this dilemma at the end of the 19th century. Up to the middle of the 20th century, more attention was directed towards the uniquely parlous state of black women, especially those of the working class, subjected as they are to overlapping forms of prejudice. Remember how Claudia Jones spoke of triple oppression and super-exploitation. But even this language suggests that the problem is an additive one. Working class black women are oppressed because of racism, sexism, and capitalism so that their overall problem can be broken down into three sub-problems. It seems fair to say that Jones also offered a one-size-fits-all solution to deal with all three problems at one stroke, namely the introduction of socialism. Many black feminists in the 1960s and 1970s, though, had a different analysis. In a way that Anna Julia Cooper arguably pioneered back in 1892 with her book, A Voice from the South, these later black feminists argued that black women face a problem of the second sort, they are in a very special predicament of their own, and there is no reason to expect that a simple combination of efforts toward black liberation and women's liberation could ever be sufficient to rescue them from that predicament. For this reason, building on the legacy of older black women's organizations like those we discussed in episode 63 with interview guest Brittany Cooper, these new black feminists banded together to form organizations of their own, collaborating on the activist front and generating a prodigious outpouring of intellectual work. Note that we say new black feminists. After all, this is not our first look at black feminism. We've repeatedly addressed previous subjects as black feminist thinkers and activists, going back way past Claudia Jones and even Anna Julia Cooper, all the way to Maria W. Stewart's speeches and writings in the 1830s, which we discussed in episode 44. But it's only now that we have an episode with black feminism in the title, because the word feminism itself was not commonly used before the 1960s and 70s we'll be looking at the intellectual challenge that Black feminists posed to the feminist movement as it was developing during that time, 
as well as to the Black Power movement of the time. An outstanding example of this challenge is a collection of writings published in 1970 entitled The Black Woman, an Anthology, which was edited by Toni Cade, or as she began to call herself soon thereafter, Toni Cade Bambara. It contains short works of several genres, poems, some by authors we mentioned when discussing the Black arts movement like Nikki Giovanni, autobiographical memoirs, short stories, and argumentative essays. In her preface, Cade Bambara questions what she takes to be an assumption underlying the feminist movement up until that time, namely that women are simply women. During the 1960s, Black women have increasingly felt underserved by that movement and have been turning away from the larger society and turning toward each other. One of the better-known essays in the collection delves into this issue more deeply, Double Jeopardy to be Black and Female, by Frances Beale. First published in 1969, this groundbreaking manifesto was collected not only in Cade Bambara's anthology, but also in the white feminist Robin Morgan's landmark collection of 1970, Sisterhood is Powerful. Beale was a member of SNCC, who had helped to create that organization's Black Women's Liberation Committee. The title of her essay suggests a similar idea as Jones's triple oppression, and thus the use of double instead of triple may make it seem that Beale is less interested in class than Jones was. But in fact, she traces the subjugation of women in part to capitalism, with women expected to work as mothers and housewives while their partners go out to earn money, becoming a mere satellite to her mate. This, of course, is something a white feminist might say too. But Beale argues that the concerns of black women have usually been overlooked by white feminists, who largely come from a middle-class background. In particular, black women offer what Beale calls an escape valve for capitalism, just as poor whites can at least comfort themselves by looking down on black people, black men cope with their own economic exploitation by being glad that at least they aren't women. Along the same lines, an essay here by Kay Lindsay, called The Black Woman as Woman, observes that up until now, the black movement has been led by men and the feminist movement by white women. Thus, Lindsay writes, the black woman finds herself on the outside of both political entities, in spite of the fact that she is the object of both forms of oppression. The same point was made in the title of another collection, published a bit later, All the women are white, all the blacks are men, but some of us are brave. The point being that black women must be brave, having been ignored even by the two great liberatory movements of the day. Black feminists insisted that white feminists could not presume to be addressing the issues of black women with their efforts to face the oppression that they, as white women, faced. White women have greater access to middle-class luxuries and greater social capital, and have a place in the ideal family unit. Black women often do the dirty work for such families, and are seen purely in the terms of what physical labor they can offer. As Lindsay puts it, stereotypes and expectations of the black woman see her as nothing more than a body, without the inducements offered her white counterpart, while white females are sexual objects, black women are sexual laborers. Another striking essay of this time, one that did not appear in Cade Bambara's The Black Woman, is Linda LaRue's The Black Movement and Women's Liberation. LaRue was a graduate student in political science when her piece was published in the May 1970 issue of The Black Scholar, an important outlet for Black intellectual work founded the previous year. We find in this piece a particularly stern critique of white feminism. LaRue mocks talk of oppression by the sort of white women who pronounce themselves sick and tired of playboy foldouts and of Christian Dior lowering hemlines or adding ruffles. She admits that white women are suppressed, prevented from achieving their full potential, 
but this is very different from being oppressed as black women are. White women are simply not immiserated in anything like the same way. So she expects little or nothing from the white feminist movement. After all, white women have never shown much concern for the situation of black men, so why would they be helpful allies for black women? LaRue mentions something else that comes up a lot in black feminist writings of this period, namely a government report on the Negro family produced by Patrick Moynihan for the Department of Labor. Moynihan would later become a senator, but probably not with the help of many votes from black women. His central contention was that black families are, unlike white families, matriarchal, something that could be traced all the way back to the time of slavery, when black families were regularly split apart with children often not even knowing their fathers. The powerful place of mothers and wives, according to Moynihan, imposes a crushing burden on the Negro male. This leads to a disempowerment of black men, to the birth of children outside of wedlock, and ultimately to widespread poverty. Black feminists, understandably, were affronted by being told that their supposed power, and not, say, their oppression by white power, was the root cause of problems in the black community. But even more outrageous was that many black men seemed more or less to agree with Moynihan. This brings us to the other side of the critique offered by black feminists. They complain just as much about black men as they did about white women. And it cannot be said that the male leaders of the black liberation movement gave no reason for complaint. An infamous supposed example is Stokely Carmichael saying there was a position for women in the movement, namely prone. The attribution of this sentiment to Carmichael is in fact a misrepresentation of a moment in which he was doing a sort of comedic bit. Actually, his autobiography, Ready for Revolution, illustrates the major role black women played in the movement. Still, there was plenty of other real talk in this time of black men reclaiming their masculinity. Actually, we mentioned an example in episode 101, when quoting the remarks of Ossie Davis at the funeral of Malcolm X, to the effect that X represented our living black manhood. And we're not the only people who have quoted this line. It appears in one of the most controversial works of the black feminist movement, a combination of memoir and polemic called Black Macho and the Myth of the Superwoman by Michelle Wallace. This book appeared in 1978, three years after Wallace's essay Anger in Isolation was published in The Village Voice. There she told of how she found herself liberated by feminist ideas, only for these newfound freedoms to be taken away once she joined up with the Black nationalist movement. Her uncompromising message is this, the Black man has learned to hate himself and to hate you even more. And she links the problem to the heedlessness of white feminists, who are more eager to draw parallels between their own subjugation of women and the racial subjugation of black men. Since black men are fellow victims, white feminists give them a pass when they mistreat black women and expect these women to be housebound drudges, supposedly in the cause of the revolution. Now in the book Black Macho, she greatly extends this argument, making the case that black men are now, in fact, among the most important sources of oppression for black women. Black men see racial liberation as a quest to undo their own emasculation, something they will achieve through access to white women sexually and the systematic subjugation and suppression of black women. Wallace's harsh diatribe was no doubt intended to be provocative, and if so, it worked. In 2015, even her mother, the artist Faith Ringgold, would write a critical response to Black Macho. Closer to the time of its publication, Robert Staples published an article-length reply in 1979, so a year after the appearance of Wallace's book. It begins by speaking almost nostalgically of a not-so-distant time when it could safely be assumed that the black man was certainly in no position to be sexist, whether he wanted to be or not. He groups Wallace together with Ntozake Shange, 
famous for her critically acclaimed choreo poem for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. This is a very complex theatrical work, which Staples mentions here because black men are depicted committing heinous acts from rape to infanticide. Staples mounts a kind of defense for black men, whom he portrays as being victimized by a white-dominated capitalist society. In a bold reversal, he intimates that Wallace's book is right-wing propaganda because it ignores the pernicious effects of capitalism. As we've seen, this was certainly not an omission in black feminism more generally, but it is arguably a relevant point as concerns black macho in particular. Staples also makes the argument that Wallace's and Shange's views can be related to the fact that they are of a middle-class background. If this seems unhelpfully ad hominem, we should bear in mind that black feminists were often making the same point about white feminists in this period. Ultimately, though, Staples' main charge, or even lament, is that Wallace and Shange are undermining racial solidarity. They adopt what he calls an arcane philosophy by which black women will go it alone outside family bonds, a plan with little prospect of popular acceptance or success. But arcane or not, this was indeed a philosophy many black feminists were embracing at the time. In the aforementioned anthologies, we can find many passages attacking family arrangements in general, and black fathers in particular, as oppressive to women. The Black Woman includes a darkly hilarious memoir by Joanna Clark, called simply Motherhood, telling of her struggles to stay afloat financially with no help, or in fact, considerable hindrance, from the father of her children. At a more abstract level, Kay Lindsay suggests that the standard family unit in America is an intrinsically white institution put in place to support the state. Reproductive rights are relevant here. One of Kate Bambara's contributions to her own anthology defends the use of the birth control pill against black men who think that their partners ought to be rearing warriors for the revolution. Then there is a piece by Cheryl Clark called Lesbianism, an Act of Resistance, which was published in an anthology titled This Bridge Called My Back, Writings by Radical Women of Color. For Clark, male-female family relations are typically characterized by tyrannical power. Slavery itself was a radical application of the methods of oppression men had always used on women. Men always relate to women as property, as a sexual commodity, as a servant, as a source of free or cheap labor, and as an innately inferior being. More than a sexual preference, lesbianism is a full-blown revolt against the predatory heterosexuality. This essay by Clark appeared in 1981, but it harkens back to earlier developments, with the emergence of such organizations as the Combahee River Collective, a group of black lesbian activists, including the sisters Barbara and Beverly Smith, Demita Fraser, the aforementioned Cheryl Clark, and a figure who will be getting her own episode before long, Audre Lorde. Founded in 1974, the collective was named after a raid involving Harriet Tubman, which freed 750 people from slavery in 1853. A statement outlining the rationale and ideals of the collective is one of the key documents for understanding black feminism in the 1970s. For one thing, it provides the first example in this episode of a group of black women explicitly naming themselves black feminists, reminding us not to take for granted how common that term has become today. The statement is also credited with introducing the term identity politics, which of course still lives on today, though more often as a lazy term of abuse than as an aspiration or positive strategy. Barbara Smith has remarked that this is often misunderstood. We were not saying that we didn't care about anyone who wasn't exactly like us. The collective was in fact open to coalition with other groups, but embracing the feminist slogan that the personal is political 
the group wanted to embrace their unique perspective as people excluded simultaneously on the grounds of race, gender, and sexuality. As they say in the statement, the major systems of oppression are interlocking, notice not just added one on top of another. Here we have the notion that Kimberly Crenshaw would later famously dub intersectionality. In fact, Demita Frazier recalls that in conversations around the time of the statement, she told the others that, we stand at the intersection where our identities are indivisible. With the collective, we see a further step in the direction of taking particular points of view seriously. Just as black women cannot trust white women and black men to simply represent them, so black lesbians will have their own concerns that are not necessarily going to be solved through separate struggles for equality with regard to race, gender, and sexual orientation. This insight is now often appreciated by the potential coalition partners of such groups. An interesting and self-critical reflection by the white feminist Winnie Brynus, published years later in 2002, is open in admitting the failures of the movement in the 60s and 70s. She points out that white women's organizations, her example is the Bread and Roses group, which like the Combahee River Collective was active in Boston, did voice support for the Black Panthers and for racial equality. But she also admits that, we thought all women were us and we were all women, exactly the oversimplification we saw being identified by Kate Bambara in the preface to The Black Woman. White feminists of the time often didn't know or work with black women and thus were not exposed to their viewpoints. In particular, they underestimated the extent to which interracial work for a feminist cause might seem to undermine racial solidarity. Thus, black women were pulled between two movements and served well by neither. In a footnote, Brynus quotes another feminist thinker, Susan McHenry, as pointing to the need for greater dialogue to get past the situation where we alternately hazard the platitudinous wouldn't it be wonderful to work together or shout racist across a widening chasm? The same problems of division were appearing in other countries at this time, but with a twist. Take, for instance, the Brixton Black Women's Group in Britain. It was formed in 1974 on the basis of a craft organization whose members decided to become politically active. One model was the Black Panthers, but as a later account by the members says, the group had very much its own flavor because of the Caribbean influence. In a British context, a pressing question was one we've seen cropping up in other contexts, especially in Guyana, with the story of Walter Rodney, what attitude should black activists take towards other non-white groups, like South Asians? The answer in this case was to reach across the divide, notably under the aegis of the Organization of Women of Asian and African Descent, founded in 1978 as an umbrella group for black and Asian activists. But as members of the group wrote a few years later, we were beginning to learn very quickly that the concept black had very different meanings for those of us living in white-dominated societies and regions compared to those of us from societies which were ostensibly independent. There was also concern not to let sexual orientation split the movement, as it arguably did in the U.S. But the price of that unity was a failure to discuss homosexuality at all. The group admitted in retrospect, this issue, more than anything else, showed the weakness which became exposed when oppressed women tried to organize around both the traditional areas of struggle and those issues specific to our oppression as a sex. A question emerges from the story of Black feminism as we've told it thus far. Did its strength in challenging other movements count as a kind of weakness when turned back on itself? Having taken seriously the importance of the specific perspective of Black women, it would hardly be consistent to resist the consideration of even more specific perspectives, Yet this could lead to worries about fracture within the movement. 
The special circumstances of the Brixton group, as compared to the American examples we've mostly been discussing, also shows that Black feminism necessarily meant something different in different cultural and political contexts. It's a lesson shown even more vividly by one final text we want to consider, a study of the oppression of women in Africa by the Senegalese scholar Awa Tiam. It appeared in French in 1978 under the title La Parole aux Négresses, meaning roughly, Let Black Women Speak, or as it is more assertively phrased in the title of the English translation, Black Sisters Speak Out. The book powerfully delivers on the promise of that title. The first section of the book consists of autobiographical stories told by African women who suffered through mistreatment at the hands of family and husbands, often because of forced marriages and polygamy. In the second part of the book, we find Tiam drawing conclusions in a set of blistering essays on these practices, genital mutilation, and African women's attempts to lighten their skin or otherwise seem more white. Tiam is more inclined towards universalism than the particularism and intersectional thinking of contemporary Black feminism in the U.S. She writes, We go beyond the racial problem since we are taking our stance not only as Black women, African women, but also as members of the human race, without regard for any ethnic considerations. As far as we are concerned, this human race consists of social classes and two categories of individuals, men and women, whose relationship to each other is that of dominating to dominated. However, she does make the now familiar point that it is a false comparison to equate the oppression of women, implicitly white women, with that of black people. And above all, her book points to the fact that African women were subject to forms of oppression that were bound up with local practices. The struggle of the black African woman can and must be conceived in some other way than as a carbon copy of the European woman's struggle. While she herself is highly critical of some African cultural norms, She's wary of attacks made by outsiders without sufficient understanding. For example, she gives a nuanced treatment of the practice of female circumcision, discussing the extent to which women in these societies support it, even as she identifies it as real mutilation, real torture. On the question of polygamy, she's more forthrightly in opposition, since it seems evident to her that only men think it's a good idea. Chiam's exploration of the gender politics of Africa in the 1970s makes for interesting reading alongside the works of Black feminists in America, since some of the latter often talked of Africa in idealized, optimistic terms. If lesbianism offered one model for escaping patriarchal family structures, another was found in ideas about traditional African society. Cade Bambara asserts in The Black Woman that before colonialism, the communitarian and cooperative nature of African societies prevented the systematic oppression of women. The woman was neither subordinate nor dominant, but a sharer in policymaking and privileges had mobility and opportunity and dignity. Mary Ann Weathers, in her pioneering 1969 piece, An Argument for Black Women's Liberation as a Revolutionary Force, goes even further. She says that in African tribes, households, let alone heads of households, are non-existent. And you'll remember that way back in episode 22 of this series, we talked about scholarship that associates African culture with a relatively egalitarian role for women. Awa Tiam seems to pour cold water on all that. She does not associate the most sexist and oppressive aspects of Africa in her own day with colonialism, and says bluntly that it is a myth that African societies are matriarchal. Families may be matrilineal, but that's not the same thing at all, and in fact women in black Africa have, she argues, no real power. To state the obvious, all these debates are still with us today. There are real and important empirical questions to be sorted out. 
how in fact do black women, black men, and white women compare socioeconomically? Which historical societies, in Africa or elsewhere, might offer us models for less exploitative family relations? Then there are important questions of tactics. When interests do not completely align, is it always necessary to work within separate organizations? What room is there under such circumstances for collaboration? These problems lead directly to more broadly philosophical questions. If we accept intersectional representations of Black women's issues, what are the epistemological and ethical consequences? Do you need to inhabit a perspective fully to understand its challenges? When is it permissible or even possible to question the testimony of someone with a significantly different identity or set of identities? What is an identity anyway? We won't be resolving these issues in our humble podcast, but we will be continuing to think about them as we embark on a series of episodes on Black feminist thought in the 1970s and onward into the 80s and 90s. We will turn in the next episode to the expression of thoughts that we might call Black feminist, or alternatively, not, by some creative writers of the time. Writers like Toni Morrison and Alice Walker took the world by storm in the 1970s, so much so that this period is looked upon as a Black women's literary renaissance. So what more reason could you need to listen? You're off your walker if you missed the next installment of The History of Africana Philosophy.